Welcome everyone to Seek Go Create, your host here, Tim Winders, and man, it's a beautiful day where I'm at. I had a great swim this morning. I don't often get to swim, but I had a nice little swim, and we are going to be talking some cool stuff today. I've got a, I guess, business acquisitions expert on the line, and, uh, and we're going to be having a great conversation about business. I like to talk about leadership. I like to I like to have conversations with people in these positions to kind of get some some pro tips, I guess, on what uh, business owners and leaders need to be doing. And uh, and obviously, it's going to be valuable today if someone is looking to acquire or to possibly sell uh, a business that you have. And I know I've got clients that have done that recently and are in the process of doing it. And I know a lot of people always kind of have that in their back of their mind. So stay tuned. We will get to that interview in just a moment. First thing that I wanted to mention, though, is if you have not visited the new seekgocreate.com website, make sure you go there. It is such a valuable tool for all that we're doing here at Seek Go Create. And let me give you a few examples. If you go to any episode, first of all, you can listen to the podcast right there on the website. And then secondly, we've got very detailed notes. We outline the conversation that Ellie and I are going are gonna to have today. It's going to be outlined with bullet points and pull quotes and, and all the resources mentioned. We're going to try to include links to all of those as best we can. And if there's a topic that we cover that you really want to go back to, we've got a timestamp where you can go back to the outline, click on that timestamp, and it will take you right back to that location so that if you need to, I actually take some notes when I listen to some podcasts, you can actually do that. So if you have not already, go check out our website, seekgocreate.com, and check things out there. Great notes, great information there. And go all the way down to the bottom of the homepage. Make sure you give us your best email address so that you can stay up to date on all that we do at Seek Go Create. We send out an email about once a week just to keep you updated on what's going on. So today on Seek Go Create, I've got Elliot Holland, and I'm excited for a lot of reasons. And let me tell you one of the big reasons I'm excited is that I've got a fellow Georgia Tech graduate that I'm going to be talking to. Elliot is the man. Elliot is the managing director of Guardian Due Diligence. They help investors make better deal decisions by performing financial due diligence and coaching clients through the process of buying a business. He's an expert in the acquisition of small and medium-sized business. Elliot, welcome to Seek Go Create. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, I'm glad you're here too. And you're coming to us from where? Tell us again. Medellin, Colombia. Yes. All right. Uh, and, and and I told you earlier, man, I was so excited. I know you're based out of Atlanta. I was thinking, man, I'm going to get to talk. It's going to be like old home day. I'm going to talk to somebody from Atlanta and here you are in South America. <laughs> yeah, just recently, about a little over a week ago, I decided to split time between Atlanta and Medellin. So getting set up and having some fun. Oh, good. Well, maybe we'll hear more about that. All right. Question number one, what do you do? If somebody asks you what you do, Elliot, what do you typically tell people? Sure. I help first-time buyers and some others navigate the nuanced process of buying a small or medium business. Um, we do that through our main product, which is kind of like an audit. It's called a quality of earnings, but I will not put anybody to sleep today. Um, but the fun that we have is people who aspire to buy primarily million dollar businesses, they have the cash, can use the SBA 7A loan where the government backs 90%, but they've never done this before, making the biggest bet of their lives. 
we help them not get had so they don't buy a lemon and they're walking through the process at the same time. Hmm. So is this something that you kind of always wanted to do? Did you stumble into it? How does someone get in the business of being an expert in buying and selling businesses? Uh, great question. So um, how long do we have? Um, we got time, man. Go. <laughs> yeah. So no, this is not always what I wanted to do. I've had one of those windy paths that looks really cool and sort of hindsight but it didn't make any sense sort of in looking through it. And so um, I started off as an engineer, Georgia Tech, you know, you know that, came out of there, did some strategy consulting, went to business school at Harvard, got into private equity formally, um, was working with companies that did smaller deals, more strategy focused stuff, um, realized the name of game in private equity was owning equity. Uh, not so much working for others who had portions of equity, which is what the private equity industry really is. Um, spun out, started two of my own private equity firms, one with a mentor, one by myself, continued to sort of look at small and medium deals. And through all that um, time, I was the one procuring, selecting which accounting firm or which diligence provider we would use to kick the tires on all of our deals. And I realized that in the small and medium business market, the solutions that were there did not suit the needs of the typical client. And so I decided to start Guardian to kind of fill that need and to sort of maintain in the small and medium business acquisition world. Good. So, I mean, it's the, uh, the typical, you identified a problem, you solved the problem, and that's where the business or your, your expertise came from, it sounds like to me. That's exactly it. All Being right. in the game allowed me to see the problem. Yeah, that's good. All right. So I do want to back up a little bit because sure. I do um, I do have a great affinity and affection for people that have been to that trade school up uh, off North Avenue in Atlanta. <laughs> and uh, why do you want to become an engineer? That's an interesting. I mean, I've got my own story there, but obviously you're not an engineer now. Were you mechanical? Is that what I saw? Mechanical. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So what 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 growing up? Did you grow up in Atlanta? You're from Atlanta? No, so this will answer the question. I grew up uh, outside of the Motor City, baby. Oh my um, goodness, Detroit, what? I, yes, exactly, Detroit, what? So born in Detroit, grew up in Ann Arbor or a city called Celine just outside. And um, growing up in Michigan, if you're thinking engineering, you'd be hard pressed to not think mechanical at that time. Now you might think computer now, but when I was there, you think mechanical. And also mechanical is what they tell you is sort of the most versatile engineering discipline. So as an 18 year old, you really don't know what the heck you want to do. So uh, to do something like with the coolest thing that your state creates and then give yourself sort of uh, flexibility in what you'll do later. And then a couple of the car companies gave me some money to go to school on scholarship. So um, that's that's what started my process. I also had entrepreneurial parents. And at the time, I was pretty conservative. So that's all kind of the soup that got me to Georgia Tech and engineering. <laughs> and you went, I mean, you kind of, did you do that program? I think I saw Morehouse on your uh, resume too. So you did like Morehouse, Georgia Tech, Harvard. Is Did you start off at Morehouse? Yes, yeah, so they have a cool dual degree program um, that kind of suits Morehouse and Tech. Morehouse is not going to be funded enough to do like tier one engineering, all the labs and stuff. And Tech wants to get some more minority engineers in there. So they have a dual degree program that I did. I did three years at Morehouse, completed a general science degree, and then two and a half years at Georgia Tech, completed my mechanical engineering degree 
and uh, then got out of there. As we say, I got out. <laughs> nobody, nobody graduates from Georgia Tech. They just get out. That's right. I mean, uh, and, and how about you, man? It seems like almost everything in life, well, you did Harvard too, so maybe we could compare that. It's like, I don't want to say everything's easy, but but a, but going through Georgia Tech kind of sets a pretty high bar. What are your thoughts? You know, it depends on what you want to do. So it's funny you say easy because my life's been like the hardest, most cantankerous path for most of my peer group. Uh, most of my friends think I'm crazy. And then I, one of my buddies just told me he almost gave up on me, but luckily things started working out. Um, if you want to do engineering, yes. If you want to live in a plant, you know, way outside of a city, you know, in these weird places, yes. Um, and if you want to, if I had started, like I started my career at Accenture and consulting, if I wanted to do sort of a 30 year career there, yes, easy. But I, two years after I graduated, um, got into Harvard for business school and it just opened my eyes to a whole new level uh, and set of opportunities. And I wanted to do uh, some of the toughest stuff in private equity. And so being a Atlanta guy, not being on Wall Street, being an Accenture consultant, not McKinsey, you know, I had to do 250 calls to get a job. So I got 249 no's and one yes. And then I've been kind of scrappily, if that's a word, maneuvering through the small and medium business acquisition private equity space since then. So like I've got all kinds of battle scars, dude. So you, so you can actually speak the language of a small business owner. You know, a lot of people there in the consultant, or I, I did air quotes for the people listening that, uh, that can't visualize this. The, a lot of people that are consulting or experts in fields many times have never experienced some of the things that their people go through. But uh, to get 249 no's, you understand what a business owner goes through. I want to back up just a little bit, though, Elliot, because I'm very intrigued by origin stories. I don't think that, um, you know, Elliot or Elon or Bezos or anybody just kind of arrives at a place that most of us see them in. I think actually it's a process that people go through. And I'm an industrial engineer, so you know that the process and system is important for me. And I think I'm a hybrid of that mechanical that you are. But, but, uh, but let's back up. You kind of briefly mentioned it, and I want a little more info on this. You said you came from entrepreneurial parents or a household. So let's let's talk just briefly because I like to know how people come to be and how somebody goes from Detroit to Atlanta and Harvard and all that. Uh, tell me a little bit more about growing up, what, what it was like with your household and what kind of entrepreneurs your parents were. So I do the exact same kind of work my dad did, funny enough. Hmm. Um, but I was not that dude in middle or high school. Uh, so um, my father did uh, SBA loans when the government was a direct lender, meaning the government would loan you money. Now the government goes to Bank of America and um, guarantees 90% of Bank of America's loan. So it's a bit different. Um, my father helped a lot of the first black business owners in Detroit get financing. So a lot of the tier one automotive suppliers that got set up, um, my father helped them with the financing. And my mom did similar things, but her lane was more in banks and municipal bonds. So you wanna build a new sewage uh, piece in Detroit, you gotta go to Wall Street and get a huge bond. Um, growing up was all the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Um, my dad had me when he was 50. I was the first kid in the second marriage. So he had done really, really, really well, um, earlier in life. Um, and later in life struggled a bit to keep up the same pace. And so we sort of saw how 
you know, economics change when there's not as much money coming in, um, the strain of having to leave the house and be gone more often to chase business. And so I had seen both sort of the, the good sides of it kind of when I was young and then some of the tough sides of it later in life. And then um, my father actually passed when I was just under 15. So that kind of threw a tailspin into things. And so my experience with sort of ups and downs and adversity coming out of high school was pretty robust relative to the other folks at 18. Yeah, did that, did that impact or help you as far as your drive for getting education at all or for what you were thinking you wanted to do with life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember sitting in my room and I think we all have these moments and I'm, you know, 15, don't have control over anything. Bill's not getting paid. Uh, leaning on my church pretty heavily and like friends from school to still like stay on the like travel soccer team and that kind of stuff. Um, and just being like, you know what, to get out of this in a sustainable way, like we're engineers, right? Um, education is, is the obvious choice. If I just throw myself at education, I'll be able to get a scholarship to go to school, which will set me up to go make stable money is what I was thinking at that point. And um, that was sort of the impetus of my sort of very distinct focus on education. Yeah. So it forced you. Were you, were you a good student growing up? I mean, were y'all uh, education minded, you know, in middle and high school or did it, did it kick in at some point? You know, it's funny, man. Um, two of my guys a year ahead of me, one went to Harvard business school. The other is like amazingly uh, well sought after in sort of the digital marketing and software space. Those guys were smart. I was like just outside the top 25% of my class. I think the benefit I had was entrepreneurial parents. So my dad would talk through negotiations in the car when I was 10. Now, I didn't know what the heck we were talking about, but I remember him. I remember seeing him walk into different offices, do different work, his work product. So I was a decent student, you know, like not even top quartile, just outside of it. And um, I think I just turned on the jets and also was able to, how would I say this? Cut the fat through a lot of the experiences. Yeah, that's that. Well, that's good. Well, you kind of streamline and decide what's important and what's not. You know, I just had a kind of a weird question come to my mind. So maybe play along sure. with me. We're recording this just a few days after Father's Day. And um, and my father is actually still alive. However, he's in a facility and and he doesn't really know who I am and or anything like that. So from a mental standpoint, he's he's um, got to mention all that. And your father is not around and all that. But I, I want to just ask this question, if you're OK with it, if sure. you could have a brief conversation with your father now where you're at in business and things like that, what would you ask him, tell him, what would the conversation sort of be like? You don't have to give me a lot of details, but just what's a few things you'd love to chat with your dad about who passed when you were 15 years old? Um, this will give you some insight into why I'll say this. So on my father's grave, it reads, keep the angels laughing. <laughs> so um, he would hop in a meeting, get the business done in 10 minutes, and then laugh and crack jokes for the rest, always in that order. So I think if I could talk to my dad, I'd high five him. I'd, I'd probably tell him, hey, dad, uh, I, I had some toughness coming off the blocks, but I ran some plays, man. Um, uh, what do you think? And uh, probably given his life experiences, um, he was a lot of people's smartest friend. People came up to me at his funeral and told me that. I didn't know what that meant at the time, 
being older and now I know who I'd say that about and who I wouldn't, I'd probably just ask him like, hey, here's my path like going forward. Like, what do you think? And I think that'd be it. Yeah, that'd be, uh, I think it'd be valuable. You know, sometimes we, we, uh, you know, we miss conversations and I don't know why it's real interesting. I, I think men, women may be similar, but I think our, one of our biggest desires is to have our dad say, you did good. You did good. I mean, I had a conversation with my grown son the other day and I could tell he was really craving and I, I think I do it, but maybe I don't. He was really craving me to say, good job, son, you're doing good. And, and, you know, I probably have the same thing from my dad and you probably would love to hear that too. Right. You know, I would, but I want to put something out here for folks that, um, a lot of folks don't have their dads, don't know their dads, dads aren't present. Um, you know, I lost my dad at 14, so I had almost, you know, 14 plus good years. Um, one of the things that benefited me from him passing away was that I had to strike my own path without the consistent guidance of a father. And I had to do it without the validation of my dad. And I think that one of the big themes of my life now is doing stuff without needing validation and getting the validation either internally through faith, through stakeholders that are in your family or close friend group and not worrying about this wide world that has all these opinions or like one particular person that doesn't have your life goals. So, I mean, as much as like the father thing and, and getting validated would be super cool, right? I think a bigger piece, you know, I'd, I'd love to go through the decisions I didn't have a lot of guidance on with my dad and and, and, and even have him critique me and just chuckle about what happened. So I, I guess the thing I would put out here is just, even if you don't have entrepreneurial parents or your dad's not around, um, you're smart enough to get this stuff done, um, get after it. Yeah. That's good, Elliot. I appreciate you bringing that up because you're right. There are a lot of people that are lacking or struggling maybe with a father figure that's not around. My wife is is that way. But it leads to a great question that I typically ask, and it's really kind of the theme of a lot of what we do, which is really that definition of success. How do we define success? And really, you know, anybody's listened in, they know that I'm all about redefining it. I don't think you define it when you're born and called to something. I think we go through this path or this process. How are you right now? And I'm also going to shift this to talk about business owners and all in just a moment. But how does Elliot define success now? And what are some things along the way that you've had to redefine what success meant to you? Yeah, and funny enough, this has stayed pretty consistent over the past kind of 15 years. To me, success is achieving the goals you set for yourself without undermining your own integrity. Hmm. Um, and so one of the big things that I tell people is to define success. For me, success, I have a metric of sort of um, maximizing um, sort of income per unit of freedom restricted. And, and all my friends are probably chuckling because they're like, I've heard this so many times, this this engineer with this freaking weird metric. But, um, you know, for me, it's like, hey, you can pay me a little and, and give me freedom, right? Or you can pay me a lot and restrict it a bit more. But that's the spectrum that I'm on because I have family things that I like 
that I focus on and are real priorities for me. I have personal things. Um, and being in finance, anyone in finance will know there can be a, 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 a lust, a thirst for capital appreciation that's so significant that it can sort of do damage to your, to your heart and your soul. And I didn't want to be moved by it that much. And, and the people who I think are, are just not folks that I would choose to work with over long periods of time. Mm. All right. So that, that leads to another question that, that I, I love to discuss because I think it's the thing that messes with most people. It messes with people from a spiritual background, church people and all. I think it messes with business people, but a different way. And then if you've got people that have faith and operate in the business world, it, it has it even to another degree. And that is the topic of money. Because mm -hmm. I didn't hear you say success equals X amount of money, but I heard you say that it was part of the formula. And, and, and the way, and I love the engineering conversation here. I'm going to ask you to say a little bit more about it for the non-engineers that might be listening in, because you've got an equation. It sounds like that if that you will give up time, I, I, the other day I was talking to somebody and, and, and it came up that there's two great equalizers in this world, time and death. Everybody's going to, everybody's got to deal with time and everybody's got to yes. deal with death. And a little bit morbid there, but I think people will at least No, get real. It. <laughs> yes. So, so tell me a little bit more about that formula, and I want you to talk about money. And the reason this is important is because when people are buying, selling businesses, or they're even running a business, I think they have to come to grips with what is their relationship with money. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm going to talk to it from the lens of a black male specifically, which does not mean that I'm not talking about other folks, but I think there's so few people speaking from this point of view um, in this industry, I'm just going to go there. So um, the black church talks about lack of money as glory. Hmm. And I'm not going to say that's good or bad. It just wasn't my orientation and understanding of money. Um, as I mature, money allows you to have choice freedom. So um, when it's going to your kid's soccer game or taking that seven o'clock, you know, drink session with the biggest client in your portfolio, right? If you have a certain amount of money, you can assert, hey, I'm going to my kid's soccer game and sort of, I understand the, the, the importance here, but sort of whatever happens on the other side of that choice happens. I think for people who are in lack of money, they don't have that freedom to assert their own personal priorities on their work life. And so it becomes limiting to their ability to assert their integrity, their personal priorities and the rest. So for me, what does money mean? I think money up to a certain level of like sustainability, like being able to cover your bills is really about covering your responsibilities. And I think money above that is sort of creating freedom for you and others and choice freedom to, to sort of deliver and then manifest sort of your priorities on this planet. And then that's a little bit esoteric, but I, I did it on purpose because um, it's a very purposeful walk to not say, I want to maximize money, particularly in finance. And honestly, what I love about my client base, Tim, is they're all like me. They're like, like mid thirties, mid forties, even a couple mid fifties people who have been on a corporate kind of thing for a long time see a better opportunity in buying companies. And if you ask 85% of them, the reason why they're doing it, they'll say, 
I want more time freedom and more autonomy and agency around how much money I need to make to be sustainable in my position. And I'm willing to bet a whole lot to get it. And I love that. Yeah. And, and I agree. I mean, money, I, I actually, you brought something up, so I'm, I'm going to go there. I grew up in the deep South and you brought up some issues with money in the, in the historical, I guess the black church. And I grew up in maybe what would be like a Southern Baptist mindset. And they, they had some different weird thoughts about yeah. money too. But I, I want to ask this because I, I, I like to have these conversations. Some people get uncomfortable with them, but I'm just curious as a, I, I like to call myself middle-aged, but somebody the other day said, Tim, you're beyond middle-aged now. I go, hold on a second now. I'm 58. I know I'm a grandfather, but I'm 58. I think that's middle, but uh, let's just say as a mature white guy, yep. is there anything else that I should know from a, just a, a, an understanding of some racial issues about possibly the way someone who's brought up in the black or the African-American community that I just, I just don't get, or I don't even know to ask or anything. And I'm not, we're not going to go into a real deep race conversation here, but I think it's valuable to have these conversations. Yeah. I mean, so I think the thing that um, a a white guy or or anyone needs to think about is sort of the history of African-Americans in the United States. Hmm. So let's just take off the political correctness and just call a spade a spade for a bit, right? 400 years of slavery, a couple of cool years of reconstruction, some, some, some trash of Jim Crow segregation, um, sort of the civil rights movement in the sixties got basic, basic rights on the books. And then, um, the sixties, seventies and eighties, black people were clawing for stuff that they overworked for compared to their, um, counterparts. And, and, and now we're in this era of maybe 30 years of a more even, but not really even playing field. And I think what, what I say to, to any person to understand sort of, sort of black culture and really any culture is that I think we make up this myth that every position, every sale, every, job every whatever is a straight meritocracy like the best person gets it and i I think it feels good for us to believe that i think that as we go through life i think we see that for some unfair reasons some people have it way easier and you can own that i think a lot of people do you can dismiss that you can reject that i think it's the strongest sort of heck no feeling um but if we're honest if we're full of faith if we believe in truth then I think we just have to recognize the people who are around us, what they may have been through generationally to get there. And that doesn't mean you don't compete with that person. I want to, I want to compete fairly with everyone. Don't get me wrong, win, lose, or draw. But I think it's just paramount that we recognize or have some conscious of what other groups may have been through. Yeah. And I think the tough thing is that in a, in a perfect world, which even saying that is probably a waste of my breath. In a perfect world, we would have a level playing field. Right. Where things are, quote unquote, fair and everyone has the opportunity that other people have, male, female, color, skin, 
uh, you know, and then we kind of start tying in education and then you say, okay, does that a little bit different? Anyway, the, the bottom line is we're not in a perfect world. It's an extremely imperfect world. And, and, and I've kind of gone through, I've bounced, especially growing up in the deep South. I've kind of asked myself, what might I have that I need to purge? Because I know I got it. You know, we, we all have stuff that is probably in there. If you want to call it privilege or I hate to use the word bigotry, but you know, there's, there's stuff that we all have. And, and I've come to grips with this, that I don't know that there's a ton of stuff I could do other than be mindful and aware and look for opportunities. (laughs) That's, that's all that I know. That's 100% of what you can do. Yeah. I think, I think when people ask, kind of what can they do? I think it's the same thing you do for a person that you know went to a terrible high school in your city that's competing pound for pound with the people that went to the private school. Yeah. You know that person, right? Brown, black, white, whatever, went through more crap to get there. If they're competing head to head with people who have way more opportunities and advantages, you should just realize that. When you're dealing with people who may have um, more difficult um, paths to certain places, when you see them, it's just being aware. And and it's funny, I have a lot of friends who I'm like their, you know, black friend, right? And I get this question a lot. And it, it's sort of like nobody's asking you to like be the second coming of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, or Malcolm X um, even there, but it's more just, let me put it in this light. So I go to a place like Harvard, right? And everybody's like, oh, you learned finance there. One of the biggest lessons I learned it's like I was in school with like um, Jules Diamond, like her dad's Jamie Diamond. He basically runs the free world, CEO of Chase. I was in school with like um, Rick Wagner. He used to run Ford, his son. When I went to internships, if I'm on an internship with like Rick Wagner's son or like uh, Jamie Diamond's daughter, like I'm not even in the competition, dude. I'm just there to do work and hopefully get a stamp. And so we understand it in extreme situations. Let's Let's understand it in more nuanced ones. Yeah, and and that's good. And again, I don't I don't want to do a deep dive into this because it's a it's a challenge. But I, I like to have the conversation from time to time just because I think there's value, and I sure. think a lot of people try to ignore stuff like this. So I appreciate that. I do want to ask you real quick about Harvard, though. What it, you know, you mentioned what I just heard you say was the power of connection also at Harvard. I mean, I was going to ask what was the curriculum like and then what was the experience like, which could be two different things because there are there's pecking order when we hear certain things. And Harvard MBA is one of those things that's thrown around as, uh, you know, we could go back to what we were talking about earlier, as a privilege or, oh, you're so lucky oh, or yeah. look what you got there. And But anyway, so Harvard MBA, talk a little bit about that. Um, it is a privilege. Um, I, I, I wear that every, I wake up with that, right? Um, and I, I recognize that, that too. So the curriculum, you know, I think what's nice about Harvard relative to like even the top 10 schools is, and this is probably a bit different now with technology being bigger. So this may be like a Harvard Stanford thing now, but you sort of know you're getting the best and the toughest and the most kind of universal business, um, learning that there is so so you wouldn't expect like you know somebody at the sixth best school to have 
a better curriculum than, than me at Harvard, which gives me a lot of sort of mental advantage over longer periods of time. Because people always want to know what I was taught and I'm not concerned as much about what they were taught, just being honest there. I think the experience is eye-opening because, you know, you use the word connection. I think that's a big piece of it. But I, 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 I always split like Harvard into three sections of folks. And, and this has helped me live my life thereafter. So there's some folks, and I talked about them, like super wealthy parents, you know, best private school, Ivy undergrad on Wall Street. Like they're so rich and well-connected that even at like bottom quartile performance, they're going to make it. Like you can't think that you can compete with them. They're, they're just, they can't lose because their parents and family won't let them, right? Then there's some folks who their, their experience was so great. They might've come from nothing, but they went to like a top 10 school, top 10 job, top 10 placement at that job. So they come into Harvard Business School and like everybody wants them, right? And then I think there's like this bottom third of people who like scrapped their way in, had a good day writing essays, smiled the right way, right? And like, to me, what helped me from the experience perspective was just like, hey, Elliot, these are the folks that you're competing with. These are the folks that have similar stories. Don't get don't get confused or like pushed off path by some of these amazing things that people do seemingly with less work than what you're putting in. Just recognize that you're kicking the best butt that you could while you were there. Yeah. And it's interesting. There was a, I think there's a book that I've heard title. I've read parts of it, but born on third base, I think is the name of it. And, and what you just described is something that's really brought up in that uh, is, is the fact that there are some people, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, is life fair? Is there an even play level playing field? No, there, there's not. And there never will be. We can't create it. And, you know, this is my thinking. I don't really want the government to create it either because I don't think they have the expertise to create anything like that. So so that's... I think the I'm, private sector's done such a terrible job. Yeah. God-awful job. I, I think I'm an economics guy on that. What's the alternative? If the government doesn't, nobody will. And the, the history of how poorly um, capitalism in the United States has done that screams somebody else needs to take this up. Um, we could go into, I think the church has done this poorly too. But, you know, I have to sort of interrupt there. You know, I don't have probably any more confidence in the government fixing problems than you. But I'd have to say they're probably the leading institution for leveling this stuff out of people who were better capitalized with better brains. So I don't know where to go with that. Right. And some of that is through some of the programs you talked about with loan programs and, and things like that. So let's let's shift slightly. And I want to move into the business sector and sure. and and tell tell us again the primary uh, range of client that you work with. We're not going to leave some of this conversation because I'm going to bring it in. But let's sure. go ahead and start talking about some business. I want to I want to get some principles, some teaching from you on some things that you see. So give me again because you're like small to medium sized business, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah. I'm. I'm. I, I live in deals under ten million dollars. Like ninety percent of my deals are people purchasing companies where the purchase price is less than 10 million bucks. And my friends think I'm crazy because all my business school friends are doing hundred million dollar, billion dollar deals, startup stuff. But I, I love this part of the market. And it's the part of the market where like, I can have an impact and go buy something. You can have an impact and go buy something. Everyday folks can go um, have an impact and buy something. 
And that's what's so cool. And I am an enabler through my company, Guardian Due Diligence, to take someone who just has the idea to do it, has the gumption to set enough time and resources aside to give themselves the ability to go through the process. I can sort of take them from there through to the finish line. And we do it through financial diligence, which is like the hardest part of getting a deal done is making sure the financials and the business model of the business is strong enough for you to pay what you're paying. But that's the service that I provide to people. Right. And what's interesting about that that price point, because that's really kind of the sweet spot of what I work with, too. I'm, I work with C-level leadership teams and uh, actually just had a client that did an exit in that price range and another client mm-hmm. on the upper end of that that uh, they have an interest in an exit down the road. But but I, I, I guess the thing that I love about that range is that that's like the... If there was a middle class of business people <laughs> yes, and they're working hard, they are some of the yes. hardest working, yes. getting the job done, creating jobs for, you know, society and culture. I mean, am I right? I see you're nodding. People that are listening can't hear that, but go ahead and keep going to applaud I mean, that range. The, the best thing about my business right now is the, the segment of the market I serve are some of the coolest entrepreneurs I've ever interacted with. So each new client, even the ones that kind of yell at me and scream at me and want stuff faster, right? Because I'm in business, you know, people pay me and I get in trouble when I don't do what they want. They're still awesome folks. And I think you you nailed it. Like this is, this is middle class, this is blue collar, this is get it done, this is no silver spoon, this is somebody, I call it scrappy. These are the scrappy folks that don't need a whole bunch of direction to get through it. And when you meet people like that who have, um, sort of drive to not only like buy a business, but I, 85% of the time when people tell me what they want to do, it's buy a business so I can be a better husband, better father, a, a better employer, a, a meaningful community member for all the things. So their morals and their selves manifest through their capital choice to invest in a business. And that's so cool to see over and over and over again. Sure. In in that range, we've got a lot of listeners that I know are, um, some of them are mom and pop, some of them have moved beyond that, but they're in that business range. Give us, give me a few things that you've, because you've probably seen a lot of them, and I like when people get to see a lot of variation within a certain group. Sure. Give a few things that you observe that people do well that run these businesses that you see and on the flip side give a few of the biggest mistakes that you see people make not not necessarily moving towards exit we're going to talk about that in just a moment or acquisition or exit but just in general running the business doing the business trying to succeed a few things i do well and a few mistakes and so i'm I'm going to alter this a little bit tim if i may most of my folks are still in the process of searching for a business so i'll talk about sort of kind of what, what's the best stuff that I see and the worst stuff there, um, which is a bit different than managing a company, but if you overpay for something, you're in for a world of hurt. Um, I think the best things people do is they aggressively go after free and low cost sources of information. Um, small and medium business Twitter, like Pound SMB, is one of the coolest social media intersection with professional environments I've ever interacted with. Every time I open up Twitter, it's not to go watch uh, a, a GIF or a TikTok, 
it's to go hear what my business acquisition friends have figured out or are saying. And the newbies who are picking up data there, I think are just, you know, getting after it. I think people do a good job of understanding the risk. You know, when people, you, you can't make an investment without getting clear sort of with what the risk is. I think people also do a good job of not being so cheap that they, that they screw themselves on unwillingness to, you know, put up $20,000 for a QOE or $20,000 for a great transaction lawyer and then screw up a million dollar deal because they didn't, they couldn't sort of string together like 20 or 40K. Those are like the best things I think people do. I think some of the big mistakes people make, I think are believing that it, like a one year to 18 month process can be done in three to six months because you're Superman. I get that all the time. Like, hey, I know that they, they say it's 18 months, but I'm better, I'm gonna do it in three. And that very seldom happens. Um, oh, and you'll like these, Tim, um, overly hubristic. So uh, a lot of times, you know, people from means or just people who have, you know, hitting 10 home runs in a row come into this and they come with a lot of hubris and this marketplace, it won't knock you over necessarily, but it'll humble you quickly in ways you haven't experienced before. And then I think even like the schoolboys have to um have to realize they're kind of performing poorly too because when you walk into like a you know 60 year olds business with your like checklist and your your clipboard and let me go through all these diligence questions you you ruin the relationship trying to get your data so those are kind of the three best and three worst things i see yeah that's uh, that's interesting because i wrote down the word patience when you were talking about time frames and if there's one thing through many of the life experiences that I've been through that I'm attempting to learn more of, and that is patience. And unfortunately, typically business people, entrepreneurs, you know, all in that category, that's one of the things that we usually are the worst at, which is patience. And you just brought up the process and, you know, hubristic. I like that. I wrote down humility beside that. Um, just having the ability to, well, I'm, I mean, one of the things that's interesting, my guess is, is that there's got to be at least a certain degree of humility for people that pick up the phone and call you or come to you. Because, I mean, there are a lot of people that try to do some of this stuff, do it yourself, don't they? Yeah, no, a lot of folks do. And, you know, I've matured to the point where I tell them they absolutely should. And if that changes, you know, give me a call. You don't pitch um, them? You don't sell them? You don't bring them in? <laughs> anybody who's been on the phone with me has heard this. I do not sell uphill. If you think you're scrappy enough to get it done yourself, you should. Um, you'll hit a point in your process where you need help and whether you call me or someone else. I want, and I tell people the reason I don't sell uphill, I want the call to me when you get stuck to be easy. I don't want you to have to swallow hard that day and like Elliot sold me and I didn't choose him. And so it's, yeah, I don't want to, I want him to pick up the phone. So um, I think there is a lot of, a lot of desire to, to do it yourself. And, and look, it's, it's just like building your first house. Like, can you do it yourself and like tell your grandkids that, you know, Hey dad, put the bricks here, lay the foundation on it. Yeah. But can you spend three years with your wife yelling at you? You know, kids don't want to stay in this rinky-dink house you got going on, a bunch of costly mistakes. Yeah. And as entrepreneurs and as men, we have to own up to every decision we make. So 
I encourage folks that think they need help to get it and folks that think they can do it themselves to go give it a shot. You know, I'm not saying it's not much more complicated mid process to try to get help, but I, I've, I've seen the numbers. I'm an engineer. I'm trying to sell people who think they can do it themselves. Yeah. And the, the one thing that I appreciate in general about the engineering mindset is that where are the numbers, where are the data, Sometimes this is good. Sometimes it's not. Let's remove all the emotion. Yes. <laughs> Get yes. all the emotion. This isn't. Listen, yes. listen. Engineering. There's no crying in engineering. <laughs> right. Right. The number is the number. Even though there probably was some some of my exams and things I did, I was I felt like crying. But uh, you know, I think the third or fourth time I was taking you know calculus six or whatever. But um, I, yeah, I mean, so let's let's look at the data. One of the things I'd love to do, I'm kind of watching my time here, but yeah. uh, this is going to be, I don't think putting you on the spot, but I'd love a case study or two with just a few examples. And it could be a big success, could be something that was a failure, it could be somewhere in between. And I know you sure. might need to, you may not need to mention names and things like that. You can probably give a case yeah. study, but let's give some examples for folks just to, just to know what's possible. Yeah. So, um, one of my favorite case studies, it was, um, guy in his younger fifties, Florida had run some, um, cruise lines in his life. Um, but was tired of that hooked up with some rich dude at some, you know, swanky country club and they uh, were looking to go buy a business. So I was helping them, through the process, coaching them through, and then they found a deal. Now, now, gonna get this: they're in Florida, and they found a golf e-commerce business within the first like two months of searching. Right, just a a gold mine, you know, because because they're golfing, Tim. They're they're golfing it here. So, um, um, the guy was humble enough to realize this wasn't his expertise, even though he had read financials and all of the stuff that he had done made administrative decisions and leadership decisions. But he's like, I don't live in accounting early. It helped me here. We went through the diligence process. And the reason I'm telling the story is because I think a lot of times people need to understand this and your patience thing. We get through the analysis, the deal's solid, right? So we do our report. Hey, it's not exactly what they said it was, but it's very close. And then my guy calls me like on a Tuesday randomly. He's like, hey, man, um, I think the seller's trying to screw me. I'm like, what? I'm like... Yeah, and I, I don't know if I should just get over it and get over myself. I love the fact that he had that self-awareness. Um, or if I should go after this. But, you know, he promised, and we had a letter of intent that said he was going to leave, call it $100,000 of working capital in the business, maybe one hundred fifty. And uh, now this guy's acting like he doesn't know what working capital is, that he never signed that or didn't understand it, and he wants all this money. And, look, it's a couple-million-dollar deal, and it's only one hundred fifty k. but I feel like, given all the stuff that I've, you know, um, given this person and the honor of agreements, um, I just don't feel right. And I told him one of the most real things I've said to a client. I was like, hey, look, you've got a, a, a perfect situation. You and your buddy golf a whole lot. You found a golf e-commerce business in two months. It takes a lot of folks 12. You guys have enough money to fill that gap of 100K. I think you eat the fact that this happened to you. You know what happened. Don't let your pride get in the way of a good deal. You fund it yourself and you go run this great company and not because of $100,000, throw yourself back into like the back of the line or trying to find something cool. So that was one great success story. And then I'll tell one that um, didn't end so well because of lack of patience. So um, I had a very impatient client 
calling me all the time, emailing all the time, needing way more than he paid for. Uh, and um, lawyer, um, which just means meticulous, just like engineer, right? And so I'm sort of writing down situations where his impatience rubbed the seller the wrong way, rubbed the broker the wrong way, rubbed the bankers the wrong way. And then you get into the situation where the banker, the broker, and the seller are yelling at him. And he's like, Ellie, what happened here, man? Like, you know, we're pushing through this process. It seemed like it was going, what the heck happened? And I got him on the phone and I walked him through seven times where his impatience upset people. And I said, hey, when we started this, I said, hey, I can advise you on the deal process and negotiations, but I work for you. So if you want to go, I have to let you go. But when you rub all these folks the wrong way and you're a younger buyer with an older seller, you've announced that you don't have the patience required to get through this process in ways you didn't recognize. So we have to reel this back in. Um, and I think being able to be holistic about what happened and sort of pull that, that deal back on the rails, it was sort of a, a negative thing that turned positive. Yeah, that's 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 good. I, lo I love how patience has come into being a factor in all of this. So so you primarily represent the buyer. Is that correct? Yes. OK. Yep. 100 percent the buyer. So so give I mean, maybe it's patience, humility, things like that. But let's just say that someone is listening in and they're considering acquiring something or they're just musing or something like that. What are a few things you would tell them, especially if they're early on in the process, just as a tip? And it might be pick up the phone and call you or it could just be something else that they need to do. Give give a little advice here. And then I'm also going to ask for some, even though you don't represent the seller, I'm going to ask for you to give some observations about people selling uh, sure. their businesses. So I think the first thing someone who is thinking about this needs to do is go and find a great data source. And let me just give you a couple. Um, Walker Darbo's book, Buy Then Build, um, the Harvard Guide for Buying a Business. Don't think because it has Harvard on it that it's fancy. It, you'll enjoy it. The Stanford Search Fund material. And even on my side, I have 100 instructional videos to talk you through a lot of stuff that you're going to need to know from a more execution orientation. So go to one of those places and like get get in a speedy way, get up to speed. Um, the next thing is put your resources aside. You know, you're going to need at least a year to do this. So if it's part-time, you may need a little bit more. So kind of get that going, talk to your family, make sure you got that going. And then um, the other thing I would do is just talk to people who have been successful and people who have been unsuccessful. And Elliot, where do I find these people? You go to SMB Twitter, go on to Twitter, pound SMB, the folks on there who have been successful and not will talk to you. And, and that's where you, you, you get your best data. And I think there's so many resources to help facilitate the rest of the way. If you, if you get through 30% of what I just said, um, you'll be ahead of most and then well on your way. Excellent. And we'll attempt, I know the people that transcribe will attempt to put some links for some of those resources. And I love that you've brought up Twitter multiple times that there's value there because truthfully, a lot of times when I go to Twitter, 
it's it's just it's a mess <laughs> and and you have to kind of steer clear of some of that so i love that it's created such a valuable tool for this uh you know the hashtag or pound um smb so i'm gonna actually go check that out myself so that's valuable there so all right let's jump over here because i know you see it quite a bit even though you sure. don't represent these folks but someone who's interested in selling or they possibly are looking for an exit or they may want to transition out of the ownership or leadership of their business that they started or that they own. And, sure. and I know you, you've seen them, you look at them and you interact with them. So what are some things that you could tell those people that are in the process of either growing or building their company? You just smiled. What's going on? <laughs> you've been right for 30 years, do it or do that. But you're wrong if you underinvest on getting your financial house in order. Nobody is saying they're smarter than you. You put kids through college, you paid off mortgages, you had employees that their livelihood is owed to you. You are wicked smart. But your financials probably stink to high heaven. And so any amount of like a $5,000 package from your local CPA, a simple consultation on what you need to get done will save you so much headache. And, 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 and that does not mean a business brokerage process where they're trying to walk you through selling your business and they get paid when you sell. You want to pay somebody to get your financial house in order because it'll save you headaches. Like when I have sellers that don't have their financial house in order, I end up having to encumber them with three or four phone calls, five or six phone calls, really like pesky stuff that they shouldn't have to share with me because it's not in Excel somewhere. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is um, be reasonable, be smart, don't be greedy. It, it's still a seller's market right now. And so sellers are getting away with a lot of stuff that might change in six months. But what I, what I would tell most sellers is you'll get the honor you give in these processes. If you start working people over early, you might think it's big smiles and happy-go-lucky and, 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 and junior trying to buy your business, but that person has tallied up all those things and they're going to try to bring them back later on in the transaction where they have more control and leverage. So, you know, deliver the honor that you want to get back in the process. Yeah, I, I think that's valuable. And I want to put an exclamation point on that first point you brought up because I've got longtime friends and also clients. I wasn't necessarily involved with the sale of their business, but uh, but they are in the vacation rental management business, yeah. And uh, they had someone approach them, and the timing was good. It's a great time for them to exit. They've been in the business, I believe, nine years, and and you know a lot of the people in those businesses they 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 do the shoebox method of accounting and things yes. like that and these folks had not they were pros all the way down the line and let me tell you what it was one of the smoothest quickest and they got a multiplier that i didn't think that they would i was impressed and sure. and a lot of it was on them i mean i don't know that i had any any um, impact on any of that other than I, I've been coaching and working with them for a number of years. But I agree that financial piece was critical because there was complete confidence in, on, in all sides of it. And in fact, some of the acquisition, which was a larger company, said that they 
did not have some of the things in place for the company, the smaller business that they were acquiring. And uh, that was pretty impressive. So anyway, I, I definitely, definitely agree with that. So, um, so then I'll say this real simple and I'll be one sentence. You rather have the person going through your stuff, each person you paid than the person the buyer paid just because the experience is going to be very different. Even if you pay for a sell side QOE, which is the thing, mm-hmm. um, just think about how nice people are that you paid are about things versus the the, the forensic account that somebody else paid. Just yeah. think about that pain when you're making that choice. Yeah, and you don't want it to be, you want it to be, uh, I love the honor word that you use earlier. You want this to be a pleasant process. Listen, the great equalizer, time and death. We don't have time to deal with a lot of harsh um, you know, butting heads, make this an enjoyable process. Someone wants to sell, someone wants to buy. Let's make it a nice process along the way. And uh, so I, I like the thought of that. Um, well, b- before we jump off, I'll have everybody, I'll have you tell everybody where they can reach out to you and get more info. But I, sure. I want to kind of start bringing this in for a landing here. And one of the big questions that I want to ask is what are you seeing across the business landscape? What do you really like about what's going on in business? And then what are you looking at going, huh, man, we're still struggling with some of these things. And I'm just talking about business in general. You could take it small, sure. big, whatever you want to do. The thing that keeps me up at night, I'll start there, is just the way artificial intelligence will likely wipe out a lot of blue collar jobs, people that already had it rough and people who may not spend as much time watching Wall Street and markets to know what may be coming. Um, I'm, I'm concerned that that will have a very negative impact on the balance of haves and have nots. So that's one thing I think generally that I'm just keeping my eye on. I think the great thing that's happening and I've experienced it through places like Twitter and LinkedIn is that it used to be everything you learned was either through like a university or you go work for somebody who's super smart for less than what you should get paid to learn it. You had to go there and do it. Now, if you spend enough time on the internet, go to the right places, invest small amounts of money in some of these classes, you can learn big pieces of complicated things um, without breaking your back and without even taking more than 12 months, let alone four years. And then you can start kicking butt right away. And that's the person going to the library doesn't have a laptop to look at stuff and the person that's got 20 laptops in their house. And I love how how quickly information can disseminate. It's kind of like the democratization of data. And I love what that means for the person who is willing to put in the work can actually win easier in my belief. Yeah, and and I love how you worded that because it kind of circles back to some of the things that we brought up earlier about uh, an unlevel playing field and things like that. You said for the person that was willing to do the work there are resources that are out there. And I, and I think that should encourage us even in a, in a, in a culture, in a society where there's always going to be people that are on third base when they get started. Yeah. <laughs> and some yeah. folks that aren't even in the dugout, <laughs> they're not even around, they're not even yeah. in the stadium. <laughs> yeah. But one of my favorite stands, and, and I learned this in business school, um, the person on third base does not want a fair head-to-head competition with a dude that had to make it to third base from the dugout. Mm-hmm. And if you can continuously create like head-to-head, like unassisted combat scenarios, combat air quotes, um, you can start whooping people um, in, the, in, the, in the life of business. And I think people need to know that. Like the, the, the toughest business, the business that we say is most sustainable is the one that's kept going with the fewest resources. 
I think that's the same with people. Sure. Elliot, I've enjoyed this conversation. I, one more, I don't usually ask this, but is there anything else you would want to say based on some of the things we've said before I do my few wrap up? Anything else that's like, huh, wish we had talked about this or this is something that triggered when Tim asked something? You know, I listened to your podcast of the guy that spent six months uh, motorcycling through South America and had been all through the globe. And I know you're sitting in your, 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 your RV and you got it set up for your life and your family's there. And I got my family set up here in Medellin. I think um, the rules of the game have changed and you can actually set up life work systems that work for you too. And, and if you want to learn more about that, follow folks like Tim and, and Elliot that have kind of figured it out. Yeah, that's good. Real quick, what are you doing? What are you doing in Medellin? Because I, I thought I was going to have a conversation with someone in Atlanta, and you get on the line and you're down in Columbia. So tell tell us tell us what you can about what you're doing down there. Uh, living in paradise for a lot less than what it costs to live in Atlanta. Uh, enjoying the city of eternal spring, seventy five to eighty five degrees all year long. Uh, you won't know if it's summer or winter here. And um, creating a new adventure for a guy that spent, you know, 20 some odd years in Michigan and 20 some odd years in Atlanta. It's time for the next, uh, the next rodeo. If you, if you so big, big, big contrast, just right that you're observing now, big contrast between going somewhere like Columbia, being in Atlanta, give a big difference for people going, huh, what's, what's he talking about? You legit have rent, food, your friend network that now is mobile on your phone wherever you are, like get over yourself. If you if you can figure out a way to create money autonomously or in a work from wherever scenario, it's just a, a, a discussion around um, where do you put down your your rent, your, 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 your food and your communication with friends. And, and I think that's been proven by so many folks that speak about it online. You know, I look at, I'm like Tim Ferriss, four hour work week, I'm like 15 years into it. <laughs> but I, I think I finally figured a piece of it out. I'm sitting here thinking, I need to figure out, I need to look at a map here. Can I get the RV down there and do a visit with Elliot down there in Columbia? That'd be nice. <laughs> and, and vice versa. I, I'm going to think about some ways to come visit you. Uh, yeah, that'll be a lot of fun there. I think we might have had a brief hiccup. All right. Yeah. Final question. How can people connect with you and who maybe who do you, who should connect with you? I know you'll probably open to anybody that wants to reach out, but how can they reach you? We'll put it down in the links, but, uh, and who should yeah, reach If you're thinking to? about buying a business, right. Or you want to learn about doing it, um, reach out to me. You can find me at guardian And if you start typing Google, I'll help you. Um, or find me on Twitter, Elliot, E L L I O T T middle initial E Holland at, uh, on Twitter and, and find me there. And then if you're further along, if you're sending offers to business owners and letters of intent are flying, um, you can check out the special offer, um, offer from Elliot, uh, and you can get your letter of intent or your offer letter to purchase a business review and your company valuation reviewed for free. So those are the easiest ways to, to find and engage with me. Yeah, that's good. Make sure you reach out to Elliot. And I actually went on and opted in and I got like 12 critical questions to ask and things like that. I like some of the resources that you've got. Very good there. Elliot, we are seek, go, create. And uh, three big words there. I'm going to I'm going to allow you to pick one of those words that resonates with you more than the other two right now. And why? That's my final question. Create. I just left a, a conference on the creator economy, which is in, in line with how quickly 
data is being democratized and available. If you have a vision, if you have something in your heart, if you have a special point of view, you have a gift, go start creating content and, and, and resources around it. And if you spend 12 to 18 months doing that, um, your life will change. Yeah, love it. Elliot, thank you so much. I knew we'd have fun having this conversation and we did. I probably could have continued the conversation, but if you have listened in, I know this has been a value to you. Do me a big favor, take a screenshot, or if you're watching this YouTube video, if you're on one of our socials or even on our website, listening in, share this episode. I know that there's some people that needed to hear the conversation we had about uh, anything, education, about race, about just success and money, and of course about business. Share this episode with people. That's the number one way that people get exposed to new resources like podcast and YouTube. So make sure you share it. And like I mentioned at the beginning, make sure you go check out our website, seatgocreate.com, extensive notes and details. The resources that Elliot talked about will be included in all of those there, and you want to go check that out. Until next time, we do have new episodes every Monday. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be.